0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in the book of Matthew called Mysteries of the Kingdom with a message titled, The Defeat of Satan. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 verses 22 to 29 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: In our study of Matthew 11 to 13, we have been noticing You know, the people that either struggle with doubts or those who directly oppose Jesus. And we've said that all of that happened in the face of the amazing miracles that he was doing. But we have also noticed that the doubts and the objections to Jesus are explained. Up until now, we've noticed that Jesus has a commitment. His commitment is informed by the First Testament, by the will of God, and by the wisdom of his mission. He will bring some of the blessings of the end times into this world right now. But at the same time, he will withhold the final judgment until he has called all his followers to himself. But behind the drama of the blessings and the ongoing evil of the present world stands a reality which we, especially in the Western world, have often overlooked. And what I mean is this. When we in the West think about evil, well, we often talk about evil governments and evil events and evil people. Sometimes those of us who are more astute will even think of evil that lives inside all of us. But almost always, we don't think about the evil one, that is, Satan. We don't think about the one who is called the prince of the power of the air. We don't think about his legions of demons who are ceaselessly at work to make this world hemorrhage with evil. You know, if Jesus is the long-expected Messiah and Savior of the world, if he is the one who brings his kingdom into this world, Well, it must mean that at some point, he will have to utterly crush Satan. In our ongoing study of Matthew 11 to 13, we've come to an essential passage helping us to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So I'm reading Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 29. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, "'Can this be the Son of David?' And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So let's do a little groundwork here. Every human being is affected by the reality of spiritual warfare. The Bible teaches us that there is a fallen angel whose name is Satan. Job 1 verse 7 warns that he roams through the earth going back and forth in it. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus warned us in John 10.10 that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we have every reason for believing that his handiwork inspires wars and great human conflict. Indeed, Revelation 12 verse 9 teaches Satan leads the whole world astray. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 even tells us he masquerades as an angel of light. Now, for many of us who are unaware of his schemes, he easily deceives them into thinking his intentions are good, and so they become victims of his insidious designs. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, we're told that he's at work to blind the minds of unbelievers, causing them to discount the message of Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, Satan is called the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient to God. So his impact is felt widely, and many are affected by his destructive designs on the human race and his hatred toward God. He's ultimately the leader of everyone who has failed to submit to God. Satan also has a host of angels called demons. Great effect on this world. We're not told their number, but we know they have spread out throughout the earth to bring chaos and destruction. According to Revelation 9.20 and 16.14, they're able to perform miracles and bring about false religions. According to 1 Timothy 4.1, they deceive people and inspire heretical doctrines. According to Luke 6.18, they're able to torment people and even bring sickness into their lives. But they do more. We know, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, the gods that the nations around Israel worshipped, gods that inspired everything from child sacrifice to sexual immorality, well, those were demons. Wayne Grudem, in his study of demons, says they use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, and numerous other tools to deeply root evil into the hearts of human beings. Many in the Western world are completely ignorant of the, the great spiritual battle that rages around them. If we knew the full extent of both satanic and demonic influences in politics and in educational institutions in the media, thousands of areas of human endeavor, we well, turn pale. Were it not for God's amazing mercy in which he actively limits their power, this earth would be already undone. Jesus said in John 8, that Satan is the father of lies. The lies of this world, everything from lies in places of power to the, to the lies that destroy individual human lives, well, they are inspired by him. The insidiousness of what Paul describes in Ephesians 6 has not occurred to many. Paul says that we wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So from the time of Christ's birth, A great spiritual war was born. You remember that Herod tried to kill Jesus by ordering the massacre of all the boys in Bethlehem. And he didn't care how many he murdered, just so he got the Messiah. And the book of Revelation describes the spiritual nature of those events. It says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. See, from a biblical perspective, Herod was the instrument of the dragon, or Satan, who waited to kill Jesus at the moment of his arrival. But as we know, he failed. But the war was just beginning. You know, Matthew 4 describes Satan's role at the beginning of Christ's ministry. This time, his method is more subtle as he tries to subvert him before he begins his public ministry. And ultimately, he offers Jesus all the kingdoms under his authority, if only Jesus will bow down and worship him. And when Luke records that event, he not only says that Christ triumphed, he also adds these chilling words recorded in Luke 4.13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. See, the battle had not ended, but a clear attempt to kill Jesus or the more subtle attempt to subvert him were not the only tools that Satan was using. In Matthew thirteen 38, we're going to see as we study that Jesus speaks about a group of people who are trying to destroy the message of the kingdom, and Jesus calls them the sons of the evil one. And another way of saying that would be to say the children or, or the offspring of Satan. Satan has his servants. He has his children. And if I understand Jesus correctly, I think Jesus is referring to the Pharisees. Their opposition to him is so much more than just mere disagreements. They were a part of the evil kingdom sending out his servants. Now, we also know that one horrible effect of their work is seen when an individual becomes possessed either by a demon or a group of demons. You know, that can be referred to as being demonized in which an individual has lost all power to control himself and who is now ruled by demons. And Jesus spent much of his ministry driving out demons from people who are just so afflicted. So, in the text before us, a demon-oppressed man is brought to Jesus. So, let's stop here and consider that. You know, demon-possessed people were often brought to Jesus. Matthew has already told us about two demon-possessed men who were so fierce, that is, they were so strong that no one dared to pass them by. I mean, these men were so strong that they were able to break chains and shackles. You remember that Jesus cast out demons into a herd of pigs. That was in Matthew 8. But all the way back in Matthew 4.24, as Jesus' fame was growing, people are regularly bringing the demon possessed to him. The same is told to us again in Matthew 8.16, or Matthew 15.22 says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. There are so many incidents like that in Jesus' life. That's why John 3 verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now for most of you who are listening to my voice, the encounter with a demon-possessed individual seems rare indeed. And yet, it seems common for Jesus. And, And we must ask, why is that? And before we answer that, we've got to define our terms. What is demon possession? If you go through all the passages in the gospel that speak about this phenomenon, We get a picture of people who have a demon living or residing inside of them. Does that mean they are in the body? Well, it would appear so. But why did this happen so often in Jesus' day?
0: April 28th to May 6th, 2019. We invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada on our 2019 Israel experience with Dr. John Neufeld, Phil Calloway, and special worship and musical artist, John Buller, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Touch, see, and experience the journeys of Paul and David and walk where Jesus walked. This will be a unique, intimate experience of Israel like no other. But time is running short and the guest list is near full. So if you've been planning on visiting Israel and seeing so many of the sites of the Bible, register today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca. And special note, we'll also be offering an optional and exclusive tour of Jordan immediately following the Israel experience accompanied by Dr. Newfeld. So call today and avoid any disappointment at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: From reading the accounts of Jesus with demons, it would appear that demon possession has a bodily effect. And it seems from all the descriptions that the result of demon possession means that the person is helpless to expel the demons. And more so, it also seems that the person begins to to manifest behavior that they can't control. In other words, The demon within an individual binds that person's will so that their actions are now under the control of that demon who now rules them completely. Okay, that's what it is. Now let's take it one step further. How does one know that someone is demon-possessed? I ask that because in the Bible it always seems obvious, but it doesn't seem that way to us. I mean, we often ask the question, well, how do you tell the difference between this and mental illness? Well, the answer seems to be that the kind of manifestations that people saw in the ones they loved, they witnessed things like extreme aggression, what appeared to be supernatural strength, an intense hatred of what is good accompanied by very bizarre behavior. Notice how this is different than mental illness. Someone may be mentally ill, but does not exhibit a hatred of all things that are good, or is even, you know, screaming or blaspheming against Jesus or possessing supernatural strength. You know, we might remember the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. One demon-possessed man easily overpowers and severely beats seven grown men. You know, another aspect of demon possession that often confuses us is that once a person is demon-possessed, I mean, what follows are hundreds of different physical or psychological effects. Mental illness can follow. So the demon possession can be quite complicated. One has both the demons and the illness. I imagine that the experience of demon possession is so awful that the mind breaks. But notice in our text, the effect of demon possession is not mental illness that is not here, but blindness and the inability to speak. The person simply became locked into their own dark world. So demons not only take over the body, after that, they slowly and systematically begin to tear the body down until they've utterly destroyed it. And before we get on with this text, let's address two more questions. First, how do people get this way? And interestingly enough, that's actually never spelled out in the scripture. If the incident of Judas is any indication, then it would seem that a person opens their lives up to demons through opening up one's heart to evil. You know, at first, the evil they entertain seems manageable, but soon evil is personified, not controlled, and instead of doing evil, Evil rules that person. You know, the wonderful news of the gospel is that at conversion, the Spirit of God lives in us. Even though demons might harass us and terrify us and tempt us and hinder us, they can't possess us. 1 John 5, 18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one, watch this, and the evil one does not touch him. So let's answer one more question about demons. Why is it that in the Gospels, there seems to be more demon activity than we encounter today? Well, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, only to say that there might be multiple reasons. I mean, among those reasons might be that at times, a whole culture becomes demonized. And that's so for numerous reasons. Now, let's get back to the text. We notice that a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus and he heals him. Matthew spends little time telling us about the actual events. His interest is in telling us what happened next. And remember the drama in our text. People are wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah. But the Pharisees, out of hatred for Jesus, must find a way to give an alternative explanation to what's going on. And please also notice that there are simply no incidents of anyone being able to drive out demons in the Old Testament. And Moses recognized that the pagan gods of the nations around them were, in fact, demons. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. Please also notice the words of Psalm 106, in which Israel is condemned for not doing what God has commanded them to do when they entered the promised land. So let me read Psalm 106, verses 34 to 38. It says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Now That explains the prevalence of demons in Israel. It would seem that Israel's involvement with demons never left their culture, even after they abandoned the idols. The promised land had become a land that was infested with demons. That was the history of the place. Now, along comes Jesus, and he's driving the long-entrenched demons out of Israel. In his ministry, he's winning one major battle after another over the demons. And the Pharisees denied that the king had come. So they needed another explanation for that remarkable phenomenon. And their answer, well, it's got to be a satanic trick. This man is Satan's man who's attempting to trick us. We need to resist him. Now, if you pay attention to what Jesus says in response, we can learn a great deal about Satan's kingdom. Notice that Jesus says that the kingdom of Satan is an organized kingdom working evil. Look again at verses 25 to 26. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So clearly, if Jesus were working for Satan, well, then he would be bringing division into Satan's kingdom. For if Satan were to be throwing out his own demons, well, a great rebellion would begin in his own house, eventually leading to the destruction of the satanic kingdom. So what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that Satan's kingdom has a hierarchy. It has a chain of command. Satan is a fallen angel, and he takes authority over the other fallen angels. He would not be able to defeat all of the demons, and so he arranges them in military command and hence he will not cast out a demon, for any demon that possesses anyone is acting under authority. Satan's kingdom, as Jesus defines it, is a united household acting in concert with its leader. By the way, just to follow Jesus' line of thought, if he would sacrifice one of his demons by casting out another one, Jesus has been consistently casting out demons. If Satan had been involved in that kind of activity, it would inspire rebellion that would end his empire. That he would never do. So demons act in servanthood to their prince. Even though Satan can only be in one place at one time, he operates through his agents, that is demons, who are under his military command and under his orders. They don't act on their own, they act according to a united purpose. When they possess someone, it's because it's in their strategy to do so. What else can we say about Satan? Well, from this incident, we learn that the kingdom of Satan cannot withstand the kingdom of heaven. Look again at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's what Jesus brought. For when he came, the kingdom of heaven was already beginning to tumble into the present hour, and the demons were running for their lives, such is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus preaches, a great war is breaking out, and the demons are losing. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, as we know, the gospel of grace, or the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, or the gospel of peace with God. And it is also a gospel at war. It has declared open warfare on evil. As Paul reminds us in Colossians 2 verse 15, he, that is, the father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Jesus, the Christ. The father triumphed over the satanic kingdom in Christ's leadership through his king. See, whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, We are also announcing that Satan's kingdom has now been struck a mortal blow. Even though Satan may still rage and fight, he has lost a crucial battle. That battle was won by Christ. Bible teachers often remark that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated or initiated or begun, but it has not yet been consummated or completely realized we have the beginnings of what is to come. Because Satan has lost the greatest battle of all on the cross, the final outcome in the long war against Satan is now not in doubt. And Jesus comes into this world announcing the kingdom, and the satanic kingdom immediately knows they're at war. But everywhere we look along the lines of the battle, Satan is losing and Christ is reigning victorious.
0: John, you know, by our very nature, I think we're people of extremes. So I, I need to ask you the question, how do we balance our understanding of the activities of
1: Satan? You know, when the Bible speaks about how evil is in the world, it speaks about it coming from three sources: the world, the flesh, the devil. Um, all three have a, a profound impact on all of us. Our flesh is the evil that lives within us. I mean, I, You know, I don't need a demon of lust living in me, I like saying to people. I I could do well on my own, thank you very much. The same is true also of the world. The world shapes our thinking, but behind all of that is the enemy of our own souls. If, you know, if Jesus called the evil one the the father of lies, uh, you've got to believe that he is constantly moving the world forward through his lies and that his lies are felt everywhere. So I think that's part of the answer. Thanks so much,
0: John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The faithful, accurate teaching of the Bible impacts lives. Krista wrote, I came across Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld a few weeks ago when I was looking for biblical advice on a specific topic. And what a blessing this ministry has been ever since. I've listened to many podcasts, discovered In Doubt, and have recommended both to friends. I appreciate the faithfulness to biblical teachings, the depth of the teachings themselves, deep but explained in a way easy to understand. Back to the Bible is so appreciative to all those who help make the daily Bible teaching program happen. It's not one person but thousands with a commitment to the importance of teaching God's Word. Your gift, your prayers are critical. So please continue to support the program in your area so that others like Krista might grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit
1: backtothebible.ca.